Well, good evening, Ben. No, good evening, Ed. <laughs> good evening, John. Oh, there was a faux pas. <laughs> and I thought that was... You shouldn't have said anything, because I thought you were actually being funny. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm not known for my wit, am I? Um, so, yeah, it's good to have you back, Ed. It's been a while, and you've been on your journeys. I know you've been... Um, You've been down there under the sea. Yes, diving holiday and lots of work. And I promised you this show for ages. And I'm sorry to anyone who was looking forward to it and um, was let down the last time I cancelled, but I didn't have any choice. And yes, I spent two glorious weeks in Egypt diving in the Red Sea. And scuba diving is my happy place. So even it's even more fun than being on this podcast with you. <laughs> yes, surely not. <laughs> uh, no, it's pretty much top of my list, and and that inc- that actually includes sex as well. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> <laughs> diving is diving is better than sex. So, God, man, yeah. it's a family show. Well, it's, not, it's not really a family. I know, show. but it's probably it's probably why I'm single. Uh, and and I, I can't imagine that there's a huge number of small children. Well, actually, I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, don't, don't get down that kid over it. Uh, right, everyone. So um, tonight, Ed's got a treat for us. We're going to investigate Jack the Ripper. Yes, it's an interesting story. Um, and I'm going to take, hopefully, an angle that not very many people have heard about. I, this this particular uh, version of the story was completely new to me when I came across it. And I, I yeah, I, it's, it's a proper rabbit hole. Um, but let's start just with a brief overview. For those who, most people are familiar with the story. Maybe not everybody is. Um, but the story begins in the late summer of 1888, which was the heyday of Queen Victoria's reign in London, which, uh, yeah, a young woman's horrifically mutilated body was discovered in a tawdry slum street in the rundown Whitechapel area of London. On the evening of the 31st of August, 1888, the body of Marianne Nichols, a common prostitute, was found prostate, prostrate, sorry, on a pavement in the Whitechapel district in the east end of London. She'd been brutally hacked to death, her throat having been slit, and devastating cuts in her torso revealed her exposed internal organs. So, yeah, brutalised. She was first to be the first of a series of five victims of the now legendary killer who came to be known in popular folklore as Jack the Ripper. The so-called Ripper murders came under the jurisdiction of the, the Met Police, obviously, and in particular by an inspector by the name of Frederick George Aberline, who was tasked with the overseeing of the investigation. And what was it actually the Metropolitan Police at that point? Had they been formed by then? I believe so. All right, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, it's from... I've, I've always heard the investigation in the context of the Ripper is being carried out by the, the London Metropolitan Police. Okay. Um, cool. I mean, they're probably in old Scotland Yard, not new Scotland Yard, obviously, but, um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's slides for this podcast were really difficult because when it's 1888, it's not like you've got reams of Google images to go through as there is with, uh, say, 9-11 or yeah. some of the other shows that we've done. Yeah, sure. um, but there are some, some grainy photos yeah. that 
the internet claims to be the people who they say they are. Some of them, obviously, we know who they are, but others take it with a pinch of salt. I mean, this is this is basically who Google images says Marianne Nichols was, and she was the first of the, the Ripper victims. She looks a bit like. Um, do you remember? Do you ever seen the uh, Lovejoy? Do you remember, yes, remember I've thought of that. Do you remember the guy that played Tinker Dill? She looks a bit yeah, like I, a I younger mean, version yeah. of him. Uh huh. Now this 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 lady, if she lived in 2023, she'd have to have a pronoun badge on. Just so we didn't get our <laughs> shit confused. Well, um, maybe the, maybe the dress um, helps. <laughs> but one of the interesting things about the Ripper case is that. Um, the diaries of Frederick Abilene, who was the um, he was the, the inspector that was tasked with overseeing the investigation, they didn't see the light until 70 years after the unsolved murders, and they'd been in the possession of first the artist Walter Sicker, who was quite a famous painter, um, and latterly of Joseph Sicker, who's his son. Now that, that name Sicker, that's quite important, so uh, remember that one. Okay. Walter Sicker, the father, was employed by the royal family in the 1880s to provide art lessons to their son and heir, Prince Albert Victor, the Duke of Clarence, also known colloquially by the name Prince Eddie. And I will refer to that in, by that, even though it's a bit weird for me with my name being Ed. And when I was a kid, they used to call me Eddie. So, it's, yeah, just weird. That's one of my things. Anyway, um, he was the eldest son of Albert Edward, the Prince of Wales, later King Edward VII, and Princess Alexandra, later Queen Alexandra. And I've got some pictures. Where are we? Um, sorry. Oh, idiot. I put the slides in totally the wrong order. Um, well, it wouldn't, there we go. It wouldn't be a Chasing Descent production if there wasn't some kind of technical issue. Well, yeah, it's, it's not so much technical issues as a, an Ed issue, but I haven't done one of these podcasts for a while, so I'm using that as my excuse and I'm sticking to it. Um, unfortunately, Prince Eddie was not in the best of health. He'd been born mainly due to centuries of royal inbreeding, partially deaf and of well below average intelligence, and he was thus shunned by the majority of his cold-hearted family. I guess that cold heart kind of runs in their veins, but does it, it that's does just it, my personal opinion. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't replicate itself in the modern day, does it? <laughs> it really doesn't. No, I mean they're all they're all good as gold now. Yeah, like, they're all know. they're all super intelligent and don't get shunned by their family. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's actually two. Before I keep going, there's two aspects of this story that I found really compelling. Number one is a maxim that I always have researching conspiracy theories, whether it's the Titanic or 9-11 or this, which is not so much who could carry out said act, but who has the power to cover it up. Yeah. And who, who can control the media, all of the people around him, police investigations, and just direct shit the way they want. Um, and the second thing I've forgotten, but I'll remember it in a minute. Anyway, so Queen Victoria was a massive supporter of Freemasonry um, and all of the royal males of, of then and now are all Freemasons. Um, and it was also the Saxe-Coburg family, mm -hmm. um, who, which are the 
obviously it's the name of the royal family rather than Windsor. Yeah, yeah, um, and they they were the one one of the they changed the it in groups. Nineteen fifteen, fourteen. Yeah, no, because Germans, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't let, yeah, they couldn't let the country know that there was well, Ger- Germans on the throne. They were fighting their cousin, weren't they, the Kaiser? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, they, no, they were, and because they were all back then, they were all cousins, and the, the Russian Tsar, what's his face? What's the Tsar called? Oh God! Um, what was he called? Nicholas Alexander. Anyway, yeah. the, the the Russian Tsar—they were all um, cousins. Mm-hmm. It was—it's just massively um, incestuous. Um, anyway, they were also to put um, sponsors of Adam Wieshaupt, who was the founder of the Illuminati, um, which was originally a Freemasonry offshoot in Bavaria, um, and. The most significant lodge we're talking about is the Royal Alpha Lodge in Kensington Palace. Um, that's the that's the rumor, and that's one of the it's the Illuminati lodges. Don't know. Anyway, in eighteen eighty five, probably on. we'll probably do an episode into the Illuminati at some point. That's we could do an Illuminati rabbit hole. Yeah, because that, that'd be a good one. There's there's quite a lot involved there, especially especially around the Freemasons and. The Scottish Yeah, it'd be interesting to delve into the history of that um, yeah. in a little bit more detail. Um, anyway, so Prince Eddie was initiated into the Royal Alpha Lodge in 1885, um, obviously at the behest of his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and besides his membership of the lodge, he was also a regular customer at a homosexual paedophile brothel in Cleveland Street, London, and indiscreetly instigated a series of explicit love letters with a young boy employed at said establishment. The well-known Satanist is a little side. Um, Alistair Crowley, as a Satanist, I don't know. Some people would say he was. Um, yeah, Crowley. But he had um, these letters that Prince Eddie wrote in his position, possession, um, but they haven't seen ever seen the light of day. So, And it's also just a rumour, as with all of these things. There's no, there's no real evidence. There's a very compelling story. And a lot of conjecture and some circumstantial stuff and a few things that add up. Um, I mean, obviously, much, it seems pretty much like the day. <laughs> well, yeah, but this is this is also why the story is is quite compelling because we have people who are acting very much in character. Yeah. Um, and obviously, this this uh, these letters and this affair with this um, child. Um, could have become a, a massive national scandal, um, but then it got even worse for the powers that be because it, they discovered that Eddie had also made a young Catholic commoner girl of Irish descent pregnant by the name of Annie Elizabeth Crook. Oh dear! Um, and I think I've got a picture. Uh, no, not that one. I couldn't find any pictures of her. Anyway, she was she, she made her pregnant basically. And so he had one, one homosexual relationship with a child that he wrote letters to and one relationship with an Irish Catholic girl. And of the two, the, um, the establishment probably would have hated the fact that there was a, a young Catholic girl, Irish girl involved. Yeah. Um, but 
as it turned out, he'd also foolishly married her in a clandestine church oh service. Oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. Um, so oh. in one fell swoop, he banned himself from ever becoming king because they're not, they're not allowed to marry Catholics and they're definitely not allowed to marry common Catholics and conceive children out of wedlock. Mm. Um, so in 1883, Eddie's mother, Princess Alexandra, had asked the young painter Walter Sickert to introduce Eddie to the artistic and literary life of London. Sickert's studio, where he spent most of his time, was at 15 Cleveland Street near Tottenham Court Road in North London. He duly introduced the teenage prince to many of the area's bohemians, Mm. um, including the theatrical friends he'd made when, for four years, he'd been a minor member of the Lyceum Theatre Company. Sickert also introduced Eddie to one of his models, a pretty Irish Catholic girl, the aforementioned Annie Crook, who lived nearby at 6 Cleveland Street and who worked by day in a local confectioner's or tobacconist shop. Now, I've got a picture of Ms. Walter Sicker mm. and one of his paintings, which is a bit, well, bit a, weird. But, yeah. He's a bit dodgy looking, isn't he? Yeah. Um, anyway, so Eddie and... Um, uh, what's her name? Annie Crook fell for each other and had a child and clandestine marriage. And um, apparently, they had two wedding ceremonies an Anglican one and a Catholic one. Um, but then, because of Annie's pregnancy, her employer needed someone to deputise for her during her confinement. Uh-huh. Walter Sicker was asked if he knew anyone suitable. And after consulting friends, found a young girl by the name of Mary, Mary, Marie Jeanette Kelly, Mary Kelly from Providence Road Night Refuge for Women in Whitechapel. So here we have the first. Well, she was actually the last oh. of the Ripper murders, and there's, it's significant that she was she was the last. <laughs> for some months, Mary worked alongside Annie Crook in the shop, and the two became friends. In due course, on the 18th of April, 1885, Annie gave birth to Eddie's daughter, Alice Margaret, and when she returned home, her new friend, Mary Kelly, moved in as the child's nursemaid. Okay. Mary was also working as a prostitute in the evenings to, evenings to supplement her income, which was do. probably not very much. Yeah. Are you going to say something? No, just as, as you do, you know, just as you do. Just uh, mm-hmm. hawk your mutton. Sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, obviously the establishment were not at all happy with Prince Eddie <laughs> in the slightest. Can we call um, him Prince Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, you, you, it, it's just, it's not, uh, just, it, it's it just, you couldn't make it up. You really, you really it's couldn't. Like, it's like they say, history does nothing but repeat itself. Well, I, I think a wise man once said history doesn't, doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I think we've actually said that before on this very show. It's possible. I can't remember who said that. Um, anyway, so all of this stuff was threatening to t- tear the monarchy apart and spark a constitutional crisis in major proportions, so no different. Yep. Um, so, as is always the case, the monarchy set in motion a massive cover-up as part of damage limitation. Annie was kidnapped from the small apartment in Cleveland Street in which she lived and in which Eddie spent time with her and, the same, uh, and at the same time Eddie was abducted into a carriage headed for Buckingham Palace where he was instructed in no uncertain terms to stay until further notice. Fortunately, fearing worst, Annie had already given the child Alice to Walter Sickert for safekeeping shortly before she was taken to Guy's Hospital in London. Now that, because 
that child he eventually falls in love with marries and has a child with and that oh, child is no. joseph sicker it's it's a it's a screwy story it really is that's uh, that's like um what's his name the film director um oh what the hell's his name Matt, uh, oh god do you know what i mean no uh, uh which, baby and all that um, yeah no the, him yeah because he's, he's the one that can't go back to america no but he still no, gets not oscars the, not no not, not polanski the, no not polanski the guy the the um oh for god's sake how can i not remember his name he, he's a famous film director he, he they adopted a child and woody allen woody allen <laughs> that's that woody allen he adopted a child and he ended up marrying her didn't he <laughs> yeah yeah um, oh no, that was crazy because that was incestuous as well because he was sleeping with the daughter while he was married to the mum or something. Oh, crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Um, anyway, the, the child was given to Walter Sicker. This is a picture of um, Joseph. Okay. Who's the son? Um, no stranger to a drink, I would say, Joseph. No. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> Basically, Annie was taken forcefully to Guy's Hospital and she stayed there for five months. While she was there, Sir William Gull, the Queen's personal physician, performed a partial frontal lobotomy oh, on her. Good grief. Which was there's their kind of that was a, the solution for mental health issues in eighteen eighty yeah. or also for shutting people up. Yeah. because um, it works equally both ways. Um, and this obviously rendered her docile and compliant so, and thus easily controlled by the old, the old, said monsters. The old, uh, um, she was subsequently the, certified insane by girl. Sorry, go on. You used to put the tool in at the corner of your eye and, uh, and yeah. just sweep it around a bit just to mush your brain up. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, just and with no no understanding of the brain and what oh, they were no, doing, but no. it, it, it basically... People who were upset weren't upset anymore and were effectively just zombies. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so Annie was uh, subsequently certified insane by Gull and spent the rest of her life in institutions. Um, and she, her last days were in the lunacy observation ward of St. George's Union Workhouse in Chelsea. Um, and she died there in obscurity in early 1920 at the age of 57. Now, this was not the first time William, Sir William Gull had been implicated in a scandalous royal cover-up. About 20 years before these incidents took place, the Prince of Wales, future King Edward VII, and the father of Prince Eddie had been involved in a series of extramarital affairs, one of which was with the young lady Harriet Mordaunt. And I found that, that name, Mordaunt, quite interesting because that's the same surname as um, Bill Gates's little minion that we have in Parliament. Um, but I couldn't find a connection. Um, and I don't mean, obviously, I, haven't, I didn't have time to look into it massively deeply, so there may be some sort of familial connection, but the name stuck out. Anyway, one day, Harriet Morden foolishly confessed to her husband, Sir Charles Morden, that she'd been unfaithful with several men. Why she would do that, I don't know, but there you go. One of whom was Prince of Wales. Sir Charles was absolutely incensed, and he let it be known that he intended to sue for divorce, citing the prince as a co-respondent. Prince of Wales was rightly nervous about giving evidence in court, as it would bring shame upon the entire royal family and cause an unacceptable scandal. What is it about these people with scandals? It's just, when I mean, people think it's any different now, uh-uh. No, I mean, um, so, nothing's changed in real terms, has it? I mean, no. basically, we are still driven by our base of lusts. Yeah, pretty much. And 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 they seem to 
but even more so. I don't know, maybe it's because they haven't got as much to do as the rest of us. Mm-hmm. So anyway, at this point, Queen Victoria got involved um, and essentially interceded to protect the prince's reputation and instructed Sir William Gull to intervene. Gull immediately, in consult with several other doctors, conspired to have the young woman declared insane and locked away in a lunatic asylum, where she spent the, the last remaining 37 years of her life in abject misery, dying in 1906. They loved chucking people into lunatic asylums. Um, and Sir William Gull ended up dying insane himself, but said it was syphilis. Um, ultimately, the case was dismissed, having saving the prince and the royals from acute embarrassment and no divorce was granted, not because adultery was unproven, but simply because poor Harriet was declared insane. And for a very long time in England, I'm not sure about Scotland and Wales, but for a long time in England, there's only two reasons that, you, that a divorce couldn't be granted, one of which was if the person one of the, the, couple, the partners was in prison and the other was if uh, they were in an insane asylum. Okay. Um, right, so now back to the main story. That's just a little bit of background on William Gull. Um, it might all have ended there, but for Mary Kelly's greed. Back in Whitechapel, Mary had befriended three other local prostitutes with whom she'd boasted of her royal connections. And in the spring of 1888, the quartet, led by Mary, hatched a plan to demand money from Walter Sicker, him being the one that yeah. had in, in, so, well, um, so introduced. Let me let me catch up to speed here. So at this point, the child is with Walter Sickert? Yes. Um, Mary was the former nanny, and she's yes. trying to blackmail him for some reason, I assume, here. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Right, okay. Um, and she'd hatched this plan to demand money from him, threatening to otherwise make the story public. Um, but being a rather simple girl, she had not fully comprehended the fact that she was also, she was in effect also holding to ransom a group of psychopathic murderers who would literally stop at nothing and had the means to kill with impunity whilst enjoying the protection of people in high places. Okay. And as a famous detective once said, one of the most dangerous things you can do is try and blackmail someone who's committed murder. Yeah. Or in this case, had someone committed to a freaking insane asylum, which I think is actually worse than murder. Yeah, and and had a prefrontal lobotomy performed on them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um Anyway, so she basically had no idea what she was doing. Um, Thicker immediately passed word on to Prince Eddie, who informed his father and the Prince of Wales. Um, this, they basically talked about it in greater secrecy with trusted fellow Masons at the Royal Alpha Lodge. Subsequently, a special meeting was arranged at the Lodge by Royal Masons, known as the Princes of the Blood Royal whereby they agreed to form a hunting party to literally hunt down and kill the hapless girls as punishment for their, their sheer audacity and significantly as also as a Masonic blood sacrifice ritual. The hunting what? party was drawn... Ex- there's, well, there's a Masonic blood sacrifice? I hear, yeah, that's a whole other dark, oh, deep, good. not family-friendly rabbit hole. And I mean, it's, mate, it's happening already. Have you seen... Um, Oh, what's the name? That artist, Marina Abramovich. Yes. Just, just yeah, look yeah, up yeah. her name on Google Images. Yeah. And and some of those, what is it? Um, soul. Uh, what is it? Spirit cooking. Spirit cooking events yeah. that she has. Yeah. I mean, I that she, shit's still going on. She calls it an art installation. Hmm. 
Okay. I mean, that's the Pizzagate rabbit hole, and that one is. <laughs> sure, yeah. That's Podesta. yeah. Oh, we'll, let's not even go there. We'll, we'll get let's there. We'll just, get there at one time. At some point. Yeah. Well, we'll have. I, I think we will. We will have to cover that one. Yeah. But that shit is dark, and that one has to come with oh, some sort of. Google don't this. watch this if you've got a weak stomach. Warning. Right. So, in the story so, as it stands just now, no one's yet been killed. Is that correct? That's correct. This right. is this is the, the build up right. to why the why the murders happened and so yeah this masonic hunting party was drawn exclusively from this royal alpha lodge mm -hmm. yep. and included sir william gull um and prince eddie's former cambridge tutor james kenneth stephen jk stephen okay and there's this guy oh he's a strange um, fella he, 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 yeah he and we'll come back to him in a minute him as well I know he, he looks a bit Oscar Wilde, and again, I can't. I mean, I can't. I can't verify that Google Images is giving me the right picture because these people are yeah, really old and nobody knows what they look like. I suppose but I didn't. So he could be a bit Stephen Fryish, couldn't he? He does. He's a bit Stephen Fry crossed. Um, what's his face? Oh, the other one. Um, the one that was. Oh God! I just said his name and I've forgotten it. Uh, who did you say Goldie or something no no, no poem poet oh anyway yeah okay yeah Oscar Wilde that's the one he up so. um anyway so yeah J.K. Uh, Stephen and Sir Charles Warren who was commissioner of the Metropolitan Police which um where is it? I've got a picture of him as well where are we there we go um, and yeah, so if you're going to do something like this, it always helps to have someone in the police. And he didn't actively take a part in the killings, but he did help facilitate the plot and expedite the cover-up, more importantly. And there was a few things that he did that have conspiracy cover-up written all over them. And, and they're the same sort of modus operandi that you see time and time and time again with these things when you research them. Yeah. Um, now, the coachman, who's been portrayed in some of the movies and stuff as quite a sinister, evil character with this kind of coachman riding on top of the, this uh, black, blacked-out coach, um, and he was uh, the coachman who'd previously betrayed Prince Eddie's indiscretions to the royals, a guy called John Netley. Right. And I think I've got a picture of him. Theoretically, that's him. Um and again, interesting surname because he's there's another famous person. I, when you hear these surnames, it makes you wonder if they're related. Anyway, Warren provided what information he could on where the girls were, um, obviously using the fact that he was a uh, police commissioner. Mm -hmm. And Sir William Gull prepared grapes injected with opium, which would be offered to the victims to subdue them so that the murders could take place with the minimum of fuss and hassle in the coach. It was arranged that John Netley, the coach driver, and a particularly nasty character was to be the getaway driver and the lookout. And the lookout would be J.K. Stephen, who was also incidentally a cousin of Virginia Woolf and another royal Freemason, a Freemason with royal links, whilst the murders were planned to occur within the girl's carriage away from prying eyes. Now, it should be noted that Abilene's diaries confirm that the modus operandi of... It was not one person, and, and he was very clear about that, and the murders were planned and performed according to Masonic rituals similar to a fox hunt. Um, 
these facts have obviously never come to light. So who's the ringleader of the murderous gang? None other than the prominent Freemason, Secretary of State for India, the leader of the House of Commons and Chancellor of the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lord Randolph Spencer Churchill. Who, yeah. And he's an interesting one because he's connected to both Winston Churchill and through the family um, Spencer to yeah. Princess Diana. And father of the future prime minister, obviously. Um, Churchill was not only the brains behind the entire operation, but he was also personally responsible for the cutting of Masonic emblems and symbols into the bodies of the victims, whilst the skilled surgeon's hands of William Gull performed the organ removals. The killings and mutilations were not observed by the police simply because four of them weren't they weren't done in the street. Um, they were they were done in the coach. Um, the last one was done in situ, um, and that was in Mary Kelly's own room, and that's one of the most famous sort of pictures that most people, yeah. if they're aware of the Ripper murders, will be aware of that that picture that was taken at the time that just looks like someone had taken a freaking chainsaw to her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now the police must have been aware that the bodies had been moved to their to where they were found, simply because these sorts of what they'd done would have produced so much blood. Yeah. Um, that it would. I mean, it would just been everywhere. Well, it did, um, I suppose that depends. That depends, doesn't it? Because if you killed the person first before you started the cutting, then they wouldn't. They they, they will bleed, but they won't bleed in the quantity that you would expect from a live person. Because yeah, but also blood round, you know, it just has to drain out slowly, and it's already started coagulating. So you don't you don't get as much bleeding as you think once it's dead, allegedly. Yeah, no, that's I mean that that's true, but it's still I mean obviously this is all this is all speculation. Yeah. Um. So now the assassins had then basically they had to find these blackmailers, um, and thanks to Charles Warren. Um, they essentially just systematically plotted the girls' executions. Um, the whole thing started on the 31st of August with Marianne Nichols. Um, so we go back to her. Um, and then continued with the killing of Annie Chapman on the 8th of September. There's Annie Chapman. Oh, she's theoretically. a stunner. Yeah, that's another, that's another pronouns required one. <laughs> Um, in turn, each woman was lured inside the coach and then killed and mutilated in the ritualistic way that three Jews, Jubela, Jubela, and Jubelum, who were the murderers of Hiram Abiff in the old Masonic legends, their throats were cut across, their bodies torn open, their internal organs deftly removed and arranged around the corpses in their final resting places, and the entrails thrown over the left shoulder. Nice. On the 30th of September, there were two further killings, but on that night, things did not go smoothly. The murderers were dumping that night's first victim, Lizzie Stride, and I couldn't find a picture. Oh, yeah, Lizzie Elizabeth Stride. Um, they were interrupted and had to abandon her corpse before its ritual mutilation had been completed. Okay. More alarming still, the night's second victim, Catherine Eddowes, was, according to Sicker, almost immediately discovered to have been killed in error. It was learned that poor Catherine had for some time lived with a man called John Kelly and had often used his surname. And so 
been wrongly identified by the gang's underworld informants as a blackmailer in chief, Mary Kelly. Right, okay. That mistake basically nearly did them in. Um, in the mistaken belief that this was to be the climactic final episode of the campaign, the group had already arranged Catherine's corpse more completely mutilated than any of her predecessors. In Mitre Square, significantly Masonic, opposite the Masonic Temple and close to Whitechapel Road. They had chalked on a nearby wall a Masonic slogan to act as a postscript to this whole sordid affair, um, which was uh, copied down by Abilene in his notebook, and it said, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Now, arriving on the scene suspiciously quickly, Sir Charles Warren, mm -hmm. let's go back to him. Um... Yeah, and they were really, all his underlings were really surprised that he turned up because he probably never normally did that. Um, anyway, he ordered that the chalked epitaph, presumed by observers to be in the killer's hand, noted by Abilene to be that of an educated man, should be immediately washed down and erased. The reason he gave was that he did not want anti-Jewish sentiment to be inflamed, but Sickert suggested that the real reason was that too many insiders would recognise that the message referred not to the Jews, but to the Jews of Masonic legend, yeah. and would thereby identify the killers as Freemasons. After this setback, it does make you wonder why they did that in the first place. Because yeah, well, why write that on the wall? Yeah, but if they didn't want to be identified as Freemasons, why, why did they kill them in a Masonic ritual? Well, yeah. It's... There are aspects of this that, that don't um, contradict, don't necessarily track. Um, but as with all of our rabbit holes, people just, have to go off and do their own research, make just, up their own minds. Oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. The likes have come up. Thank you, people. Thank you. Ben will be pleased. I'm sure he's lying in his swimming pool or whoever he is on his holiday thinking of yeah. No, no, I don't think so. Oh, bless him, well, everyone needs a holiday. Yeah, yeah. Um, Where am I getting mine? Right, so the reason that this um, this scrawling was washed down because they didn't want to blame, didn't want Masons to be blamed, but it was a setback, and there was a pause of more than a month, the longest interval between the killings, whilst the group redoubled their efforts to find the real Mary Kelly, who was by this time lying low in fear of her life, as you would if your three friends, well... Oh, she seems sensible, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he's, he's clever enough to run away. Um, meanwhile, rumours of the killer's association with Freemasonry and with the royal family continued to grow, and it was not until the 9th of November that Mary Kelly was finally tracked down. To use the coach again was deemed to be too dangerous now, so she was dispatched in her own Dorset Street lodgings, more bloodily, more bloodily mutilated than any of her fellow conspirators. Okay. Let's just go back to that one. So that's the death toll now up to five, is it? So the... Um, yeah. So the... Uh, the yeah, Mary Ann Nichols, or... Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Kelly. Yep. So, yeah. And we think Catherine was a mistake. Yeah, and it was the four... It was the first three and Mary Kelly that were friends. It was Mary Kelly that was the ringleader and yeah. threatening to expose this whole thing. Okay. Um, now, it, it's, yeah, so the, I mean, I mean, you can see from the picture, I'm, I'm not going to describe again yeah. what, what happened I mean, to this. I think there's we no get point. the gist. We get the gist yeah. of what's occurred there. 
Um, but yeah, uh, intestines arranged ritually around the room, etc., yeah. etc. Et um, supposedly, there is in existence a police drawing of the last person to be seen with Mary while she was still alive. And this bears an uncanny resemblance to no less a person than Lord Randolph Spencer Churchill. Ooh. Now, that is pure speculation. Um, and it was never followed up. And, yeah, the Met basically buried a large amount of this. Um, J.K. Stephen, according to Abilene's diaries, uh, him actually went to the police and surrendered himself, made a full confession in a fit of guilt, but obviously, no arrests were made. Stephen was released without charge, whilst Aberline resigned his permission with the, the police force and retired um, as a direct result of his disgust at the inaction and cover-up on the part of the police. So, who, can, who has the power to cover up shit at the highest levels of the police? Um, and there are also rumoured to be files still ex in existence in Scotland Yard that have just been sealed forever to to stop the truth from coming out, Stephen himself suffered a complete mental and physical breakdown shortly after the attacks and died a sad, lonely death in a lunatic asylum in Northampton three years later at the age of only 33. <laughs> yeah. Okay, 33, yeah, right. That's handy. Um, in, in the late 1970s, a researcher and author of Stephen Knight um managed to obtain limited access to the Ripper files, but discovered that there were many, many gaps in the records. Despite this, he still managed to unearth some new leads and information based upon which he wrote a book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. Unfortunately, before publication, many of the more incriminating parts were stolen. And obviously, this is the days before computers and iPhones and stuff, and he didn't have any um, physical copies as a backup. So, yeah, this is Ed the Techie's reminder to back your shit up. <laughs> so, that's just my little techie thing. <laughs> After the book was eventually published, minus some more incriminating information, he published another book called Brotherhood, um, which exposed the gross corruption and illegality prevalent in the Freemason, Freemasonic movement, and shortly afterwards he was dead, allegedly poisoned, but of course no arrests were ever made. No change there. Stephen Knight when Prince poisoned? Eddie found out that, sorry go on who was poisoned uh, he did this the guy who wrote this book Stephen um, yeah yeah Stephen Knight and um, after what, publishing his second he, book this book was published when oh one sec <laughs> Two thousand four, I believe. Oh no, published in nineteen seventy six. There you go. So published in seventy six. The thing all kicked off what in the eighteen eighties. Yeah. So that's just about a hundred years from when that's kicked mm -hmm. off, and they're still covering it up by popping yeah. off the. And uh, so he's suspected to have been poisoned, but no arrests were made. What What was the nature of the poison? Was that ever revealed? No, I didn't really research that. Um, in any well, great detail, uh, it's yeah. I, I mean, it, it's it's just mental. I mean, but it, if we, I'll keep going, and you realise that it's that's just it's not an uncommon thing. 
Now, when Prince Eddie found out that his wife had been lobotomized, he had a complete nervous breakdown. Um, and when he learned the truth about the Ripper murders, he just withdrew completely and he wasn't the same after that. Sickert fled the country immediately upon hearing news of Annie Crook's abduction and took up residence in Dieppe, um, which is not that getting Dieppe pretty quickly from where I am. Yeah. Um, and also attempting to protect the, the child, Alice, that he'd been entrusted with by Annie Crook, I think, Mary Kelly. Anyway, I'd have to go back. Um, when Alice grew up, she and Walter became lovers and in turn had a child themselves who went by the name of Joseph Sickert, which is our friend over here. Yep. Who is the very same man who held Inspector Abilene's diaries after inheriting them from his father. It's very strange that he'd end up with the diaries. How did Sickert end up with the diaries? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I'm not entirely sure. In the meantime, Prince Eddie whose mental health had now been completely messed up, uh -huh. um, was given into the care of the Earl of Strathmore, who owned Glamis Castle in Scotland, your neck of the woods. Yep, yeah, yeah. Until such time as it had been decided by the firm what was to be done with him, the firm being the nickname for the royals. Yeah, the royal family. Um, and... Sorry, I've just got someone bugging me. Right, so that was basically where we're at now. So the, late, the women are all dead and the cover-up is now started and Prince Eddie's been spirited off to Scotland. Um, the royal family then blatantly lied to the world and announced that Eddie had sadly passed away at the age of only 28 on the 14th of January 1892 <laughs> due to influenza. <laughs> but of course, Eddie was still alive and being held in Balmoral Castle, having not yet made the final move to... Um, <laughs> yeah. To Glabus? No. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> so, so they told the world that Eddie was dead and put him in the attic, basically. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. And now, Balmoral is approximately a thousand feet, 300 meters above sea level. Yeah. And as such, is partly surrounded by steep cliffs. This was the intended site for the planned murder of Prince Eddie to be undertaken by Randolph Churchill and John Netley, the coachman. Right. The prince was pushed from the cliff, cliff top, but somehow managed to survive his fall, and after the passage of two days, had endeavoured to crawl all the way back to Balmoral, where he was found <laughs> at the door by his incredulous hosts. It was decided after this that the best option would be to just incarcerate him at Glanis for the rest of his life, and the Earl of Strathmore agreed to undertake this task on behalf of the royals in return for one simple favour. Now, come to your this is, if you <laughs> listen, if if you if you thought it was it was crazy now, just wait because I hope people are sitting down because now, and again, this is. It's part of the reason that I chose this version of the story. I hadn't ever heard any of this stuff before. <laughs> so now it gets um, interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, now is where now is where it starts to connect a little bit more to okay. the future. Okay. Right. Um, so we've got the Earl of Strathmore, who is um, essentially incarcerating this wayward prince. Well, wayward and by this point totally insane prince. Mm -hmm. The favour he stipulated was that one of his daughters be allowed to marry a future king of England. Now, Prince Eddie died in 1933. <laughs> 
those those two numbers again. 41 years after his official death date, and during this time, his mother visited him only once, but took a photograph of him, which she apparently sent to her cousin. This photograph supposedly is still in existence and shows a much older Eddie thoughtfully painting a picture, which would ne sadly never be seen by anyone outside the walls of Glamis Castle. Okay. The pact between Strathmore and the royal family was eventually fulfilled in 1923 when Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, his daughter, born in 1900, um married the future king George VI of England oh after originally being mother. promised to his brother. It's the queen the mother. Heir. <laughs> yeah, it's the queen mother. Jesus. So originally she was promised to his brother, King Edward, who who would have been King Edward VIII, i.e. the one that abdicated. Yeah, the Wallace Simpson thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so she married the future king George VI and became mother to our queen and grandmother to our Oh, glorious king god um and yeah <laughs> but I'll, I'll keep going because essentially um in 1936 george ascended the throne upon his elder brother's abdication yep. and elizabeth became his queen consort elizabeth of course was more commonly known as queen mother and the mother of the current incumbent of the family firm yeah um king charles she went to her grave in 2002 without ever revealing the secret, and thus the world was never aware of this unholy pact. In a further twist, as revealed in the Duke of Windsor's The Former King, Edward VIII's last known interview shortly before he died, he revealed to Michael Thornton, the author of Royal Feud, The Queen Mother and the Duchess of Windsor, that the Queen Mother had been in love with him and not his brother Bertie, who eventually was King George VI. In fact, it was the Queen Mother's treachery that was the reason why the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were banished from England and forced to live out the rest of their lives in France. Um, now, there's a transcript from the final interview with the Duke of Windsor and um, the author Michael Thornton. And he says, so you're planning to write a book about the Queen Mother, said the Duke, exchanging a conspiratorial smile with his wife. And that uh, Wallace Simpson, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, we shall have to be extremely careful what we say on that subject, won't we, darling? Why is that, sir? I inquired innocently, although I was well aware of the reason. The Duke, only months away from being diagnosed with inoperable throat cancer, was interrupted by a convulsive spasm of coughing. He cleared his throat and added, I hope your book will tell the truth instead of all that gush they dish about her. Behind that great abundance of charm is a shrewd, scheming and extremely ruthless woman. He must have noticed my surprise reaction, for he quickly added with his most charming smile, but of course you cannot quote that. The Duchess was less inhibited, Wallace Simpson. The Duke could have loved to return to live in the land of his birth, but our way was blocked at every turn. We were never allowed to go back, and we will never be allowed, not until the day we die. She will never permit it. When we are dead, perhaps she may at last forgive us. When I asked her the reason, the Duchess's right arm shot out as if she was taking aim with a gun, and she said, jealousy. Jealousy of the Duke, I wondered. No, cried the Duchess, and for the first time her Southern American origins were audible. Jealousy of me for having married him. The Duke, who appeared vaguely uncomfortable with this topic, murmured, well, it's hard to explain, but yes, Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, was rather fonder of me than she ought to have been. And after she married, after I married Wallace, her attitude towards me changed. My sister-in-law is an arch-intriguer, 
and she has dedicated herself to making life hell for both of us. Was it intended then that they were introduced at the specific aim of a royal arranged marriage between the two in order to fulfill the promise to Strathmore? Who knows? Her father, and then when she was rejected by him, he was a, not well, he was a notorious playboy and rebel in his younger days. Um, and he went completely against the wishes of his family. Um, and he thought, decided that they'd have to settle to second best in his younger brother. Um, and after all, it was she, it was, it was um, the Queen Mother who fought tooth and nail to get rid of um, Wallace and Edward, basically. Yeah. She was, the, she was the reason that they were exiled to France and weren't ever allowed to come back. Um, now, obviously, there's no, there's no other way of knowing if any of this is true. Um, I mean, most of this story... There's an awful lot about um, King Edward VIII and um, the Duchess of Windsor. But in Why 1973... Edward? Don't go on. Why was he Edward VIII? I thought we already had an Edward VIII, the big fat guy. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. But they, they basically... Because I'm not even sure that was his real name, because once they become king, they, they ah, slightly they choose a, a new name. They can pick a new name, yeah. Well, but yeah, and they thought Charles they, was going to. Well, yeah, they just choose a name at random, don't they? Because they don't care. I mean, their name's not even... It's usually... Them. Yeah, it's, it's usually there's some sort of significance and our current king years ago they thought he was going to change his name because charles the first and charles the second were really not particularly good kings <laughs> and didn't they didn't exactly end their reign uh, really well did they no 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 and so let's yeah but with these guys it's all symbolism and i, I, I don't know i mean it, it's oh yeah all I know is that they've been up to the same sordid shit for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, in 1973, the BBC produced an exceedingly bizarre investigation into the Ripper story, which some people may have seen, which featured, amongst other strange anomalies, fictional detectives who all attempted to solve the enigma in their own styles. Several researchers were employed to extract all the information they possibly could about all the potential suspects, and after speaking with, let me just put some. Oh, yeah. I'll find it. Oh, there we go. That's some of the official suspects. Um. Now, after speaking with a long-retired unnamed Scotland Yard detective, one researcher was advised to seek the help of a man by the name of Joseph Sicker apparently knew all about the clandestine marriage of Prince Eddie and a poor Catholic girl by the name of Annie Crook. The researchers could find no evidence of the marriage or the man sicker, and so puzzled by this, they went back to their Scotland Yard contact, who revealed that the details he had given them were incorrect, apparently to test their intentions. He then gave them Sicker's real address and phone number, no less, and after being tracked down, Sicker willingly told his amazing story, as it had been outlined to him by his mother and father many many years previously. And it's from him that this whole podcast basically comes. So, big up, Walter Sickert, thank you very much. Hold on, go back to that last slide for a second. I just want to go through it. So we go on. Oh, no, it's not Walter, it's Joseph. Hang on. Which which slide? The, the one with the last of the official suspects. Uh... <laughs> 
Right, so we've got two Polish immigrants. <laughs> yep, when in doubt, blame right. a Polish immigrant. A dead lawyer, a Russian doctor. <laughs> yeah, blame a Pol- Polo or Russian. A, a skicer, cotton merchant. <laughs> a former medical student who just happened to be in Whitechapel. I mean, for fuck's sake, how many people live in Whitechapel? <laughs> <laughs> and, exactly. and lastly, and lastly, an American doctor due to his criminal background and his presence in London. There was only a yeah, couple of was... people there. It didn't really matter. Yeah, and when when you said to me, so we go before the before the podcast started, you said to me, oh, so we uh, we're going going to America. I was like, nope, we're not going to America. Um, <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so Sickert explains. Um, this is Joseph Sickert, not. Um, Right, so this is, the, this is the the child of the love child from the prince and the prostitute. No, no, yeah, this is well, it's the the, the prince's love child and Walter Sickert's son. Yeah, yeah. Um, now Sickert explained that the monarchy at the time had been very vulnerable and unpopular, um, and the news of a royal scandal was likely to cause a revolution. So, yeah, we've seen this before. Queen Victoria supposedly handed the matter to Lord Salisbury. A prime minister for resolution and Salisbury ordered a raid on the Cleveland Street apartment and Eddie and Annie were abducted in separate cabs. Her child, a girl by the name of Alice Margaret, had somehow escaped in the care of Walter Sicker, who had been one step ahead of the royals all along. So William Gull died shortly after the murders, early 1890, um, as did J.K. Stephen. He died in 1892 at the extremely age of 33, as we've said before. Yep. And ironically, both had been committed to insane asylums prior, immediately prior to death. So we have a lot of this commitment to an insane asylum thing. Yeah. Anyway, Randolph Churchill died in 1895, so five years after William Gull. Um, also rumoured to be insane, but in his case, it was claimed as a result of syphilis. Annie Crook also died insane in a workhouse in 1920 as a result of the lobotomy and severe mental trauma we talked about before. This Netley met an even worse end. He was chased by an angry mob after he unsuccessfully to, tried to run over Alice Margaret with his cab shortly after the murders, and he was believed to have been drowned in the Thames. Nice. <laughs> um, now, there does appear to be an awful lot of insanity, strange death around at that time. Nothing changes. I mean, as we've said. Yeah. Um, Sticker also said that his father was fascinated with the murders and bore great guilt over them. Uh, Walter Sicker had been the one who introduced Eddie to Annie and began the whole thing, basically. Um, to attempt, well, in an attempt to alleviate his guilt, um, he just couldn't say anything. There's a lot of, supposedly, his paintings had clues to the identity of the murderers. Um, and I haven't really been able to in, kind of identify any of them. I mean, there's plenty of Walter Sickert's paintings that you can see on Google Images, um, but I can't claim to be um, an expert in this stuff. Um, I'm just kind of relaying a really interesting story that I think yeah. not many people will have heard about. But people are free to go off and look for themselves. It certainly has um, the, the air of, of, of a credibility about it. That's what I thought when I first read about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could, I could and, see this working. Yeah, I mean, I first first heard about the story in um, John Hamer's book, The Falsification of History, yep. which, for 
anyone who's interested in this stuff, honestly, I can't recommend this book enough. It covers a huge amount of stuff from moon landings through Jack the Ripper. There's, I mean, there's a good seven or eight freaking down the rabbit holes just based on stuff yeah. from, from that book. Um, so basically we've now got um, the BBC because all of this stuff was unearthed by these BBC researchers um, and as you would expect they were completely stunned by the whole thing Yeah. but when they went to check the facts they found a woman named Annie Crook definitely lived in Cleveland Street at the time and that she did give birth to a daughter at the same time that Sickert said she did Right. They also believe strongly that this theory was the most feasible one of all of them. And I do too, actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And obviously they incorporated it into their show. When it was screened, the BBC production was was really confusing for people because I mean, there's a lot of con cognitive dissonance, especially in the 70s. Um, but also, the kind of typical BBC, the ludicrous combination of facts with fictional detectives and what was to many an outlandish theory yeah. involving people who in their beliefs just couldn't put a foot wrong. Um, and that essentially just brought into question the entire show. So it's well, actually... It, it, it seems to me to be the, the only one that, that actually has some kind of motive for killing these women and then stopping. Because yeah. if, if it was someone who was just a serial killer, why would they stop? Precisely. Yeah, and it was also very much banned and and instigated by the media as well, which is why it it bears so many hallmarks to modern day rabbit holes. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating because you you kind of start with the with the official people, and then you come across this story, and you think, hang on a minute, all of that other stuff just sounded like bullshit. So just. It just doesn't, it, it, it's a bit ghoulish, it's a bit like the shit that people make up for the tourists and stuff like that. It's, it's like this is what we tell the American tourists when they spend thousands of dollars to come over here and see the sights in London and kind of walk around Whitechapel at, at night and stuff like that. Yeah, um, the thing is, if you, if you started telling the American tourists this story, right, you'd probably find yourself assassinated. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they love the rules more than we do. Yeah. No, I, um, I don't so, mean by them. I mean by oh, five or something like that, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. Might find uh, well, in a hold all sealed from the yeah, other side. It, you'd be on a plane that crashed or, or a boat <laughs> yeah. that sink, sank or a ship that sank. Or, yeah, stay away from um, hot tubs and small aircraft. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Joseph Sick appeared in the last episode of this BBC um, series. And on camera verified absolutely everything that had been said about his story. Um, as previously related, it was all agreed by that this version of events was the most likely solution to the mystery. Yeah. Stephen Knight, the late author, entered the story a little later. Um, after watching the BBC programme, he asked Joseph Sicker for an interview, and after some, some indecision, Sicker agreed... Um, during the course of their interview, which took place over several meetings, Knight also became convinced that Joseph Sickert believed he was telling the truth. Yeah. Um, he said that the story had been told to him by his father to explain why his mother always looked so sad and why both she and Joseph were partially deaf, as was Prince Eddie. Eventually, he felt that the story warranted a book. 
Um, Sickert was upset by this as he'd only agreed to a short interview for an article and wanted no further publicity and exposure of his father's role in the story. Um, as, as you would once you realise the kind of people that you're dealing with. Mm, yeah. Um, but Stephen Knight was undaunted, undaunted and went ahead with his book anyway. But amazingly, and contrary to what he'd been told by Sicker, attempted to implicate Walter Sicker as a murderer, which is weird. Um, As a direct result... Knight put the finger... Yeah, Knight then... Yeah, Knight basically tried to then frame Walter Sicker as a murderer. And as a a result of this, Joseph Sicker cut off all of his ties with Knight um, and immediately publicly denied the whole story not just simply his father's alleged involvement in it all, yeah. saying that he'd made it up for sensationalism. And that last bit is what an awful lot of official researchers and official people and people who occupy the mainstream side of things outside these here rabbit holes, um, they will immediately yeah. discount everything previously said based on that one simple thing. Yeah, um, and, yet, and I, even today, all we need to do is look at the amount of people who have suddenly changed their mind over something that occurred, say, two years ago. Yeah. 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 And yet, <laughs> you know, oh, I just made that up. I, I didn't really go I yeah, went d- along with it for because everyone else was. Yeah. 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 The yeah, shit changed, yeah. bitches. No, yeah. no, that's that. Piers Moron. Yeah. The well, shit changed. Amongst others, <laughs> even that. Well, what's on yeah. There? Spencer's favourite JHB. She's oh, oh her. Oh, she's, she's, yeah, she's even less significant than Piers. Can't stand her. Yeah. So, anyway, how first of all, how could the detective that was contacted by the BBC originally have known Sickert's whereabouts, um, or even known who he was, or somehow involved in the story? How the hell did he know that without... Yeah. I mean, he had access to Scotland Yard, so potentially he saw some files. And also, if Sickert did make it up for sensationalism, why did he retreat back into obscurity as soon as he realised that Knight was giving him the publicity that he'd sort of looked for in the first place? Yeah. Um, and simply, there's no smoke without fire. And when you look at... Did he get warned off? Uh, well, it's entirely possible that he got a phone call saying, mm-hmm. don't, get in, don't get into a small plane and, and don't yeah. go out because you might have a heart attack or die suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so if you look at, you do even a little bit of research into Masonic operations, royal subterfuge, all that kind of stuff, um, even though there's no absolute proof that this version is the right one, it, it rings true in a lot of different ways. And as I said before, one of the things with conspiracy research that you have to always bear in mind is who can cover it up. Mm-hmm. Forget about who did it. Forget about why they did it. Forget about who paid for it. All of that stuff. Who covered it up? Yeah. Yeah. And if they have, if, if somehow Islamic terrorists or, or, or these weirdo ripper guys like this freaking American dentist have the ability to have the head of Scotland Yard show up. Mm-hmm. Right after yeah. some certain things happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, nope, nope, yeah. we're not doing that. Yeah, just wash out um, <laughs> Yeah. Um anyway, there's a further legacy of this sorry affair. 
which is that the payoff for the Spencers was two terms as Prime Minister for Lord Randolph's son. Uh-huh. And two generations later, Lady Diana Spencer became the wife of the future King Charles III uh-huh. and mother to the future King William V. Yeah. And his brother Harry, only to be famously discarded once she had fulfilled her wifely duties in providing her highly desirable genes to produce an heir and a spare. Um, and eventually being brutally murdered, brutally and ritually murdered herself in 1997 in Paris. And that, that in itself is another rabbit hole. That is, that's another fascinating rabbit hole. I'd, I'd love to do that one. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was a kid when, um, Prince Charles and Lady Di got married and I remember all of the media stuff and I just remember falling in love with her. She was one of my earliest childhood crushes. Oh my goodness. Um, so yeah and then i was i can still remember where i was when i found out that she died in that um that tunnel and it's another it's another one you start looking at and you think you look and you then listen to the official story and you go no fucking way <laughs> come on yeah, that, yeah that's that's like the passport that magically fucking appeared at the bottom of the bloody world trade center oh we did 9-11 didn't we, Have we, we, mm. we uh, yeah no we done 9-11 yeah which, ladies and gentlemen in the audience, you can find on the Chasing Descent YouTube channel. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, and it's not over yet, we've still got a tiny bit more to go, but we're nearly at the end of the of the presentation. Um, and, yeah, so we have Lady Diana Spence becoming, um, well, producing yeah, yeah. the king. Yeah. Um, and I mean, all of this stuff has got to be known because as soon as something happens to the rules, they close ranks and prevent the truth getting out and do whatever they can to suppress and pay off or people have accidents or whatever. And, and I mean, nobody can, nobody can argue that that hasn't changed. Um, and so it's very difficult to know at the end of the day what the truth is, especially for something that happened in 1880. Um, but for my kind of, for, for what it's worth, I think that this particular explanation to this particular rabbit hole is the one that rings the most true. And as always with these rabbit holes, I would encourage people to do their own research. I mean, if you pick up a copy of John Hamer's book, that has got, whole shitload of rabbit holes in it and it's a great starting point for research because you can then pick a rabbit hole and go a bit further down it yeah um and if you discover anything interesting come and find me on twitter and tell me all about it sounds good sounds good so what so that think, was what do you think our next one should be then uh I would think we can let the audience choose. I'd, I'd be quite interested in doing a Princess Diana one. Uh-huh. So that would be my, my vote. What's your vote? Have you thought of something? <clears throat> uh, I, w- I was actually thinking of stuff last night and I came up with something, but I've forgotten what it was. But uh, I quite like the Freemasonry one as well. I quite like that idea. Um, but yeah, I'm, I would be happy to... Okay, how about, how about this? What I'll do is after the show... I will put up a poll on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I will do choice one of Princess Diana and choice two of Freemasonry, and we yeah. should let our audience decide. Yeah. Why not? Why not indeed? Thank you. 
And if you've enjoyed this show, remember, people, you can support us at ko-fi.com forward slash Chasing Descent. Um, you can also support us at patreon.com forward slash Chasing Descent. And you can buy us a coffee at paypal.me forward slash Chasing This. That's Chasing This, D-I-S-S. Um, other than that, I would... In, in, it's oh, can I just jump in and say that no. people can buy me a coffee too yeah. if they want to? Or in my case, it's actually seagull food, um, which is buymeacoffee.com slash edtechie. And, and I would urge you, urge you to like, share, subscribe and evangelize our product out there because we seem to... Oh, I said... Oh, no, hold on. I didn't... Uh, we seem to have picked up an extra five subscribers tonight. So that's really good during the show. So excellent for that. Um, and anyone that shares out and gets us more subscribers, you know, good on you because we're pushing towards that uh, monetization mark at the moment. If you see adverts on YouTube, they're nothing to do with us because we, we don't make a penny off of YouTube for these shows. So, anything else, Ed? Uh, not from me. Nope, I'm I'm about talked out for this particular episode. Um, it's been a huge amount of fun, as it always is. No, that was it. Um, and, uh, and, yeah. Very, very thought-provoking. Um, and certainly a story I hadn't heard, and one that certainly makes you think and has a ring of truth about it. I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, well done, Good. Ed. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I like the thought-provoking. It's the stuff that I go for myself. Mm-hmm. And I, at the end of the day, we don't know if any of this stuff is true or false or whatever, but we have we have our independent minds and we have the ability to reason and we have the ability to absorb information and come to our own conclusions, which is why I suggest everybody out there does. Indeed we do. And with that, I'd like to thank one and all for attending this Down the Rabbit Hole with Ed the Techie. And it's been great. It's been fantastic. And thank you very much for having me. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. And I I promise I won't leave it so long until the next one. Good night. Good night, everybody. Yeah.